It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro here once again in the front row. Behind the scenes, as always, JR Quitman, our creator, producer, and director. Well, before we get to today's episode number 36, we, as always, want to thank you for watching and listening to our episodes. Be sure to subscribe once again, as you do not want to miss any of the upcoming episodes. As for today's number 36, Jay Billis from ESPN joins us. Yes, Jay Billis talks to us about his playing career, playing for Coach K at Duke, coaching for Coach K as well, and then eventually making his way into the broadcasting realm at ESPN also working with the legendary Dick Enberg on the NCAA tournament broadcast for CBS as well. What he's doing now, his book, Toughness, and yes, his tweets from Young Jeezy. All that coming up this episode, episode number 36 of In the Front Row with Jay Billis. Well, Jay, first of all, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, it's supposed to be the offseason for you with basketball season done, but it seems like you know, following you on social media, you're as busy as ever right now. Yeah, especially with all that's going on. You know, the NBA draft just ended. Uh, so that usually signals the start of, uh, of my summer. But, uh, you know, play around one round of golf and all of a sudden uh, USC and UCLA are going to the Big Ten. And presidents are voting on whether to do it. And uh, the phone's ringing off the hook with uh, different schools wondering whether they should jump ship and go somewhere else. So, uh, you know, it reminds you a little bit of 10 years ago when Oklahoma and Texas were uh, dealing with, uh, with the PAC 12 and going to the PAC 12, um, and all the different scenarios that were being discussed. So, you know, we're in a different era now and all of these conferences and schools, they're market competitors, uh, with one another, and they're all going to do, no matter what they say, they're all going to say that we're all about tradition and the student athlete experience. They're going to do what's in their best interest and what is going to make them the most money long term and put them in the best position, uh, because none of these schools are going to go without big time athletics. They're going to they're going to keep pursuing it. Yeah, working in college athletics, I know exactly what you're talking about. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later on with the NIL and different things going on in college athletics. People want to focus on you and, and you know, how you got to where you are right now. And, and for you, you're a California guy. Obviously, you grew tall, so you became a basketball player. But what else were you playing? What else were you doing uh, growing up in California? I played uh, typical most most kids. I played uh, basketball. I played baseball uh, into my first year to high school, uh, and then focused primarily on basketball. But I, I, you know, I was a junior lifeguard as a kid. I spent a fair amount of time at the beach here and there. Um, but but most of my 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 parents wouldn't let me play tackle football until I got to high school. And I think their, um, their thought process was I'd be so invested in other things by the time I got to high school, I wouldn't want to play. And they were pretty much right. So I never really played any football except maybe with my friends and, and uh, you know, touch football, stuff like that. Uh, so it was mostly basketball, baseball and, and, uh, and water sports. When you started to gravitate toward basketball, were you thinking higher? Were you thinking college scholarship at that point? Well, when I first started playing, I was in fourth grade and my mom, I think, just wanted me out of the house. So she took me up to a you know tryout for the local intermediate basketball league at my high school or the high school I ultimately wound up going to. And uh, I didn't I didn't know anything about what I was trying out for. I thought I was going to you know, make they're going to put you on Hey, you're on the Lakers, you're on the uh, the Pistons and you play every Saturday and Sunday up at your local high school. And I wound up making something called a conference team, which was a travel team. And so from fourth grade through eighth grade, up until I got to high school, the same group of guys, we traveled all over California, uh, Nevada, at times Utah, and we played games every Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we practiced maybe once, twice a week. That was it at night. Um, but we played 50 you know, 50 games a summer. And uh, uh, we, we were, and it wasn't just in the summer, but it was all, we were all over the place. And, uh, and it was great training for me, but I really didn't start thinking about, you know, sort of be playing in college until I started getting recruited, mostly my sophomore year. 
when you started kind of blowing up and uh, getting on these, you know, recruiting rankings and being nationally ranked and all that stuff, I really didn't think about it before then. I didn't think of myself that way. Um, you just thought, Hey, I'm, I'm pretty good for around here. And, uh, but I didn't, I didn't think how do I stack up nationwide or anything that wasn't in my thought process. So this is back in what the seventies, mid to late seventies, a travel ball. Is that kind of the early stages of AAU ball at that time? Yeah, well, it was different for AU ball. I played against a lot of great players that I wound up, you know, having college and pro careers when I was in fourth through eighth grade. So this conference program, I really don't know what organized it. Um, I know Gary McKnight, who's, you know, the uh, Hall of Fame coach at Modern Day, he, he coached in that in that stuff. And so we would play tournaments at all over the place. And in fact, we played in so many of them. Uh, we would start a game in one location and half the team, you know, in the second half would leave with one of the coaches and go start another game somewhere else. And, and you know, the half that was still playing the game, the half the team, we'd finish that game. We'd hop in the car and we'd go f- help them finish the next game. And we'd go back and forth. And, uh, you know, by the time I got to high school, you know, my brother was a really good golfer. So it was always my goal to have as many trophies as he did. And geez, I, I, you know, I, by the time I got out of high school, I had like 150 basketball trophies just from playing in all these events. And uh, it was absurd, you know, how much we played. But uh, it was really it was really lucky, you know, to have made that team, even though I didn't even know I was trying out for it. And uh, and to have played with those guys that ultimately became, you know, sort of my best friends. As you said, that led to a very good high school career in 82, averaging a double-double as a senior. But you mentioned as your sophomore year, you started to get recruiting, uh, recruited. How did that recruiting process go back in, uh, again, the, the late 70s, early 80s? Yeah, when I started getting recruited, um, I was, uh, you know, probably 16. And, you know, I was one of the top scorers in Southern California and uh, getting recognized for being a pretty good player. And so when you um, you know, you started getting, you know, notoriety, you started thinking, okay, where do I want to go to school? And, um, it really ratcheted up in my junior year. And that's when, uh, you know, Duke and, you know, coach K and Lou Olson and Jim Beheim and, uh, Ted Owens at Kansas, all these different coaches, you know, at first you thought there were a hundred places you wanted to go or could go, but it quickly came to, well, who do I want to play for? And as I started, you know, getting better as a player and, uh, I, I started thinking about, you know, I, who I play for is the most important thing. Like, I like all these schools, but I really didn't care what the best school was. I wanted to play for the best coach for me. And uh, I came down to, to those four guys. I came down to Coach K, Lou Olson, Jim Beheim, and Ted Owens. And Ted, Ted was at Kansas at that time. And, uh, and, you know, Coach K was just honestly just the one I liked the best. Um, so it had very little to do, you know, was Duke a better school than Iowa, uh, where Lute Olson was? It had nothing to do with that. Or did I want to play in the ACC over the Big Ten? It just it had more to do with uh, I, I want to play for Coach K more than anybody else. Was well, a Syracuse grad? I'm a little disappointed you didn't go to uh, to Syracuse and play for Beheim. But uh, obviously, none of those schools were on the West Coast. Did you ever entertain staying on the West Coast, staying closer to home? Yeah, if I stayed west, I would have gone to USC. Um, you know, Stan, Stan Morrison was coaching there. I really liked him. Um, but, uh, it, it really wasn't that important to me to stay West, um, uh, basketball in, in the West coast at that time, I didn't think was valued the same as it was, you know, in the East and the Midwest. Um, that doesn't mean it wasn't great and there weren't great players there because there were, but you saw a lot more players leaving Southern California than staying at the time. Uh, I, I shouldn't say more leaving than staying, but there were a lot more that you would expect to stay that were leaving. So there were a good number of the best players left and uh, went to play at, you know, uh, you know, in, in the Midwest or, you know, even though UNLV's in the, in the West, you, you didn't think about that as being a, necessarily a West Coast school. Um, so uh, I was really open to the idea of, of leaving. But the truth is, Mike, I always thought I would go back um, I thought I'll go to college and, and if I play professionally, uh, when I'm done, I'm going back to LA. Uh, that was always my thought process. I just couldn't as, as, as imagine 
you know, living the rest of my life away from California. And, and I've, I've, I've done just that. I go back for the summertime. You know, my wife and I spend a month out there during July. But uh, uh, if you had told me back then, if you leave, you'll never come back, um, I probably wouldn't have left. Yeah, you, you came to North Carolina. You stayed in the in state here and uh, stay on the East Coast. Well, well, let's go back to, to Coach K here for a moment because, again, he recruits you after just two years, and he had a losing record after two years. So what really attracted to you to him? Because obviously Coach K then, maybe not the Coach K, obviously that uh, he became as a, a Hall of Fame coach. Yeah, well, he wasn't that then. Um, and, and I think he would be the first to say that. I don't know that I have a good answer to that question that, that you know, give you a laundry list of here's why I knew that what his record was wasn't what he was going to be. I, I didn't know that. I just, I just felt based on all the time he spent with, with me and I'm sure my, my teammates feel the same way or would articulate the same thing. You just kind of knew. And uh, you know, he was honest, he was straightforward. Um, I liked him. Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't know uh, sort of, you know, how it was going to be in practice every day. I couldn't really tell that. So there were some times when, when your eyebrows went up and go, wait a minute, this is not the guy that recruited me, but, but it wasn't anything that was that big of a deal. You know, you, you, you kind of dealt with it, but um, I don't ever remember even when there were, you know, difficult days or we went through a rough patch or whatever. I don't ever remember regretting it or questioning it. Um, I, I, to me, it's been an incredible benefit. And, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons I, I probably should have mentioned this when you're asking about high school, but one of the reasons that, you know, the decision to play for the coach I wanted was so important is I did not have a good relationship with my high school coach and I wasn't alone there. I don't know any of my teammates who did. It was a miserable experience. And uh, uh, even though we had a great team, like we had a whole bunch of guys played division one basketball and beyond and, um, and we were all great friends, but it was a, it was a lousy experience. Uh, and you know, your coach is powerful in that, especially in high school. And, you know, I kind of relate that story. I don't, I don't mean to sort of hurt my high school coach's feelings. He's passed away, but I know he still has family that love him. And I'm sure don't like hearing me say this, but he, he made it miserable for us. And, and the reason I do that isn't to be hurtful. It's to, it's really more for when I talk to coaches and especially high school coaches that, man, it's really important how you treat those guys, how you treat your players. And, you know, 20, 30 years later, they're not going to care whether you had the best out of bounds plays or all that. They don't care about the X and O's. It's, it's how you treat them and how you make them feel. And, uh, and it, it just wasn't a good experience. And I was not going to go through that again. And, College was the only time I felt like I got to choose and I wasn't going to screw that up. And, and luckily I don't think I did. And obviously, you, you know, you're coming a long way from California to Durham, North Carolina culture shock. I'm sure Did it help to have somebody like a coach K that was he there for you? You know, if you were homesick or had other issues during that time as well. Yes and no. I mean, you know, I don't know what players would do now you know, I certainly missed aspects of home and, you know, you miss your family a little bit. I was never like paralyzed by homesickness. Um, you know, it was an adjustment uh, to, to be away and be on your own and especially to go through what we were going through. You know, you felt like, you know, you, grenades were going off near you all the time uh, in the ACC at that time. So you had to you had to adjust to that. But that was just all part of, of growing up. I mean, I think you could say the same thing from you know, when I played overseas in Italy, you know, you spend your first six months in another country. Um, you know, that was a heck of a lot more difficult than Durham, North Carolina versus L.A. Although, you know, back then, you know, it wasn't just Chick-fil-A closed on Sunday in the South. Everything was closed on Sunday. And that was pretty much the only day we had off. And uh, and, you know, it was colder than I was used to. Um, you know, it's just a, a different, you know, different vibe. But you got used to it pretty quick. And, uh, and, but, you know, one of the things that helped me was we got to go home for the summer, you know, now players stay year round because of, you know, having to work out and all that stuff. If I couldn't go home after, you know, once we hit, you know, the end of the second semester in May, 
um, I would have looked at that as some sort of sentence rather than, uh, than a summer school and workouts and all that. So getting home kind of recharged me a little bit. I'm sure it did for the other guys. Well, it certainly worked out for you. 82 to 86, you're there, and you came in with an outstanding class as well. Johnny Dawkins, Mark Allery, David Henderson as well, well documented as maybe the, the, the class that saved Coach K. Looking back at it now, do you think that was the case? Did you think of that when you were going through that during your time there as a four-year starter? No, I, I mean, we weren't thinking about – the goal wasn't to – elevate coach k or save coach k it was for us to do what we wanted to do and so you know our our and you know you kind of figured everybody benefit if we win the way we expect to win uh but you know you know you weren't thinking that long term about hey let's you know let's start maybe the arguably the greatest career in college sports history you know we weren't thinking about that but we were thinking about building uh, a lasting program um that was important to us uh, so when we were freshmen, we were 11 and 17. We were, you know, we were overmatched because we were young and we were inexperienced in a league full of, of lottery talent and experience. Um, and but our sophomore year, we were you know, ranked in the top 15. We won 24 games. Our junior year, we ranked number two in the country and were undefeated after 13 or 14 games. And then we wound up, you know, ranked somewhere in the top 10 to end the season. We had a couple, we had, you know, our, one of our best players got injured at the end of the year. I think things would have been much better for us that year uh, as far as, you know, how we did postseason. And then our senior year, we were, yeah, I mean, you could argue we were the best team. We just got beat in the championship game by Louisville by a bucket. And, um, you know, we won more games that year than anyone in the history of basketball had won in a single year. And that, that record stood until, uh, Kentucky broke it in 2012. Uh, we, they won 38. And if we'd, if we'd beaten Louisville in that final game, it would have been 38 and two. We'd still have a piece of that. So, you know, we did some good things. And, uh, but one of the best things I think that that group did was, um, you know, Coach K recruited them. But I, I, I do think we all helped in attracting uh, other really good players that were like us. And uh, and that was pretty cool, you know, whether it was Billy King or uh, Danny Ferry or Quinn Snyder, guys like that, um, and Tommy Amaker, you know, you had great guys that came in and really, really elevated the program from there. And, and uh, you know, who would have thought that, that Coach K would do all these things? It's really been incredible to watch. Yeah, it, it's known as the brotherhood. It kind of starts with Coach K. But as you said, when, when you can start recruiting players and bringing them in, then a culture starts with that program. 1986, tell me about that again. Obviously, it had to be heartbreak for you guys to get that far to not win it. Is it something that that still kind of keeps you up at night, or, or, or are you past it at this point? It doesn't keep me up at night, but it still stings um, because um, we did really think we were the best team, um, and, and we backed it up. I mean, I, I don't think anybody could look at that record. First of all, if you look at the schedule, we played everybody. Yeah. And, and um, you know, it's just sort of one of those things where, you know, when you don't finish it off, uh, there's always that that feeling of, you know, really? And, and you know, now who knows? Like maybe if we win that game, um, we're talked about as one of the best teams ever and all that stuff. I don't think that really matters. It mattered at the time, uh, and I think, but but now, you know, when you hear uh, you know people talk about, oh, okay, this team they were the champions. Or this the ch There's a difference between a, a Final Four team and a championship game team and the, the champion uh, with the way they're regarded. So it doesn't change our experience. If one one more shot goes in and we win, it, it doesn't. It, it wouldn't have changed the nature of the experience, but it certainly would have changed the the rest of it. And uh, so it does sting a little bit, but I don't lose sleep over it. And, and you know, we're we we talk about this stuff. I mean, we've all self-evaluated not only our stuff individually, but collectively. And, you know, I, I'm over it uh, from that standpoint. But there are times when, you know, you you see a, a movie or something, you know, Hoosiers comes on and Jimmy Chitwood hits the shot and you're going, damn, you know. It should have been us. We should have been running around. We were the ones crying at the end of the game instead of the ones, you know, celebrating. Well, you had an outstanding career over a thousand point score as well. I know, you know, self-deprecating humor, you put yourself down at times with that team. But where do you 
think you stack up with that team? What was your, your role in your mind with that team to get it to where it was and, again, to build that culture on, on that program? That's an interesting question. Like I was, um, we all played roles on the team. So Johnny Dawkins was our leading scorer. He, he had Dawkins and Mark Allery were our best players. But I really believe this. I think if you took uh, David Henderson, um, who I think should be in the Duke Hall of Fame, and you put him on another ACC team, if he'd gone to NC State or Wake Forest or whatever, he would have been first team all ACC and, and would have been, you know, a, a higher draft pick, a draft pick in the NBA and would have been much higher regarded. And same thing with Tommy Amaker. If he'd gone somewhere else, he would have been much higher regarded. Um, I think that's true of me. Uh, not, you know, not in the same way. Like I was a totally different player uh, my junior and senior year because I had to play center on that team. Uh, that wasn't my position. It wasn't my body type. Um, I remember Jim Herrick, who recruited me at uh, at Pepperdine when we played them in the NCAA tournament. He saw me and how, you know, big and kind of burly I'd gotten so I could play at six seven. I could play center against all these seven-footers. He's shouting out from the bench, Billis, what did they do to you? <laughs> You know, and uh, I, I laughed at that one. But, you know, when I played overseas, all of a sudden I, you know, I went from 245 down to, to 225 and I was a totally different player. And uh, and I had a really nice, you know, nice time playing over there and played really well. But um, but I don't I don't really look at at, hey, you know, how am I? How was I regarded? I did what was necessary to help that team. And I never, you know, now were there times when I thought, you know, really, I got to guard this guy again? Or, you know, Coach K is yelling at me over, hey, you know, keep Brad Darty from away from the basket. <laughs> yeah, okay, you know, I'll do that. Yeah. Um, it, of course, there were times like that. But overall, I wouldn't have traded, uh, you know, being first team all Pac-10, Pac-8 or Pac-10, whatever it was back then, to being with that group of guys and having that experience. I, I, I was very, very grateful to play, play the role I did. So 86, from there you get drafted by the Mavericks. And then, as you said, you went overseas, Italy and Spain as, as well. What was that total experience like? Uh, you know, was it something that you wanted to continue doing? Were you trying to come back to the NBA? Did you think that there was a chance to come back to the NBA at some point? Um, first of all, I loved it. But I, when I got drafted by Dallas, that was back when there were, you know, I don't know, seven rounds of the NBA draft. It took forever. And so when I went to camp, I went to rookie camp with the Mavericks and Dick Mata was the coach. And I, I thought I was doing really well in training camp. And one of the one of the other rookies I was with told me, he goes, none of us are making the team like they're, they're they've got 13 guaranteed contracts. And back then there were only 12 roster spots. He goes, we're not we're not making the team. And so I got an offer to play in Italy before the end of uh, before a training camp. And I was thinking, you know, I got to I got to take this. It was really good money. And and it was a, a really good opportunity to play in the at that time, what was considered the second best league in the world. And so I went and played uh, in Italy and uh, and, you know, I was one of the top scorers in 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 the league. Um, I really enjoyed it. And Mike, for me, it was really fun because I went from being a star in high school to a role player in college, which was great, but you're, you're viewed differently as a role player. You know, you average 10 points a game, people don't care. So I, and then I go over to Italy and I got to be the guy again and I really enjoyed it. It was really fun. But after uh, a few seasons playing overseas, um, you know, I don't, I didn't think that at my size and my skill level and athleticism that, you know, I, I, I wasn't big enough to play uh, you know, the five or the really even the four in, in the NBA when you're dealing with guys like Roy Tarpley and, uh, you know, all the centers in the league back then. And I wasn't quick enough to play on the perimeter. So I, I was one of those tweeners then. Now, could I have made a team? I know I could have, but but it would have been a number situation. There were guys that were, you know, I was just as good at or better than played in the league for a while, but so what? So uh, after three years, I'd kind of proven to myself what I wanted to prove. I'd had fun and I got admitted to law school and, uh, and coach K offered me a position on his staff as a grad assistant while I was going to law school. And I kind of thought, you know, maybe I should do this. Uh, 
Um, because if I didn't take that coaching, that grad assistant job, he wasn't going to offer that to me again. I, I, that was made clear. So I thought, you know, let's, let's go and let's, let's start this next thing. But it was painful to basically walk away from playing in Italy and, and Spain and all that. Cause it was fun. I enjoyed it, but, um, but I, I didn't want to be away from home that long. And I was questioning, what am I going to do if I play 12 years overseas? Like what, what am I preparing my, what, what's my next thing going to be? And, uh, and I didn't, I didn't think it matched up to what my next thing was going to be if I did law school and coaching. I, and, but I thought coaching was ultimately going to be what I did. Really? You thought that was going to be full time after, after your career was over? Yeah. When I, well, I didn't really think about it that heavily until coach K offered me that grad assistant gig. And, uh, and I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. I'd like to do this, but, um, you know, I got engaged to, to my now wife, Wendy, and uh, we really talked about, hey, you know, if I pursue this, here's what it's going to be like. And, you know, if, if, if I'm going to do this, you got to be in with both feet. I'm not going to do it if you don't want to. And, you know, I think the thing that got us um, thinking about an alternative was if I coached in college, uh, I, we were going to have to move probably three times in the next 15 years. And that's if things went well. Uh, so, um, that didn't, that didn't match up with what, what she wanted. And as a result, if, if she didn't want it, then we don't want it. Cause it, it has to be both of us, you know, that was a we decision. And so I decided to, uh, you know, we, we decided to move to Charlotte and uh, I got a job with a big law firm and, and the broadcast thing just kind of came from that. I, I didn't anticipate that it would, but that's how it happened. We got to go back though to the, the coaching, as you said, there from uh, ninety to ninety-two. That was a pretty good time, right? Number of Final mm -hmm. Fours, two national championships. Christian Leitner, Bobby Hurley, Grant Hill. Your timing was pretty good on that one. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, every day in practice was like an NBA All Star game, and uh, uh, you know when when the coaching staff told the players what to do, they could actually do it. <laughs> and uh and it was amazing you know the 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 three years i was there duke went to the ncaa championship game every year and uh, uh and won back to back in 91 92 um so it was extraordinary you know that and uh, i i got to work alongside not only coach k but um you know pete Godet and uh, mike bray and tommy amaker both of whom have been incredibly tommy was a teammate of mine in college but but both, both, uh, both Mike and Tommy were incredibly influential on me in a variety of ways. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that opportunity. And then I learned even more, you know, about basketball. I learned a lot from Coach K as a player, but it, it paled in comparison to what I learned as an assistant. And, uh, and it even got ratcheted up from there through my broadcast career. I think, you know, the years in broadcasting and, and those three years as a grad assistant were, a, you know, sort of a master class in how how different coaches do things. And I've, I've, I've learned a ton from it. It's helped me a lot. Did that help take away the sting of 86 a little bit being on the coaching staff? No, no, we talked about that actually. Um, I remember, I think uh, Johnny Dawkins after Duke won in 91 in Indianapolis, Johnny Dawkins called Tommy Amaker and said, does it, and asked that very question. He goes, does it take it away? And, uh, and Tommy said, no, it doesn't. Um, it's great though, but it doesn't. And, you know, nothing will match. Like, that's one of the things that I, I kind of remind my friends in coaching when I think sometimes it's easy. It's definitely easier for fans, but sometimes it's easier for coaches to think they want it more than the players. And they don't. They don't. The coaches get time after time after time to do this and try to try to win this thing. Players get have a finite opportunity. And, you know, when you win it as a player and win anything as a player, to me, there's more meaning to it, but yet the coaches are the ones that have the record. You know, like nobody asks what your record was as a player. The coach gets the, the now they get the blame too. They get the money, the, 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 the wins and the blame. Um, but but it, it, I, I, always, I always felt like, um, you know, the, the winning and losing as a player was way more meaningful and and hit you deeper than it did um when i was at least when i was an assistant now you know, maybe being a head coach is totally different because you're carrying you feel like you're carrying all that responsibility 
But one of the things that I, I you know, I, I tell people too is like, don't when you when you start thinking you want to win more than the players. Remember one thing: you're sitting or standing over there. No, nobody's trying to stop you from doing your job. You know, the players out there. There's a physical component to it. Um, they are gassed at the end of these games. They're running up and down, and you think they didn't want that rebound as much as you wanted it? Like, come on, man. Um, th- that that used to frost me pretty good when coaches thought, well, I want to win more than you did. No, you don't. <laughs> and if you think you do, come on out and show me because they don't. Who, who are the guys that showed you? Who was the, the guy during your coaching time there, those national championship teams? Who, who was your guy that maybe impressed you the most with their talent out there? Well, with talent, Grant Hill was the most talented player, and I still think he's the best player to ever play at Duke. Um, you know, Kristen Leitner was the most accomplished, and they're one and two in that. And reasonable minds can differ. It's an arguable point. But Leitner was an extraordinary competitor. I mean, to be able to watch him every day, I, I don't remember. Now, maybe somebody could point one out, but I don't remember him ever getting outplayed in a game. We might have lost a game here or there, but but I don't remember him ever getting outplayed. Shaq never outplayed him. I don't, I don't remember it. Chris Weber didn't outplay him. Um, but you know, and he was a great athlete, you know, we played tennis a few times and, uh, he could walk on his hands from one end of the court to the other at six ten. Uh, and, um, you know, Bobby Hurley was a, an amazing at, like, I don't remember Bobby Hurley getting tired very often. Um, he, he, when he got, I can't remember, he broke his foot or something. And, uh, so he was having to rehab and do stuff. And back then, you know, after practice or something, before I went back to, you know, the office or law, you know, law school, I would jump on a stairmaster and and I had like I had some record for the amount of uh of floors. And so one day Bobby doing his rehab beat it and then I came in, beat it again, and and he would beat it and I beat it again. We had this running competition while he was rehabbing. And one time he just got tired of it, like this back and forth, because I would leave him a I don't know, maybe it's a post-it note or something. And you know, with a little FU, I just did this. <laughs> and and I remember like he ended it, like he went and put it so far out of sight that, you know, there was no way I could ever match it if I stayed on it for two days. Um, he just, he had a stamina that not many players I ever, I ever saw could match. Um, you know, he, Thomas Hill is a great player. There's just so many, so many great players uh, on the floor and, the, and all these pros uh, you know, we come to practice and Mike Bray would go, look at how much money is out there. And uh, <laughs> he was right. Yeah. Again, uh, some quality talent out there, two national championships during your time. As you said, you went to law school, then you moved to Charlotte. So, but you make that transition to broadcasting during that time, right? You work with Bob Harris, longtime voice of the, the Duke Blue Devils who retired a couple of years ago. What got you into broadcasting and, and maybe who got you into broadcasting? I was practicing law in Charlotte. I thought that was it for me. That's what I was going to do the rest of my life. Um, you know, I don't really think about, okay, well, if I, you know, you get asked the question, where do you want to be in 10 years? Like, I don't know. I mean, I've, I got to concentrate on what I'm doing today. So, you know, I, I, I was practicing law and I got a phone call from a guy named George Habel, who was the president of the Capital Sports Network that carried the Duke games and NC State games and North Carolina games, I believe, at the time. And he came and wanted to have lunch with me. So we went to lunch and he said, I'd like you to do color commentary on the Duke basketball games on the radio. And I, I was like, I you know I got a job. I, you know, I don't know they're going to let me out and run around to basketball games. But my the leadership of my law firm said, yeah, if you can, if it's not going to affect your law practice negatively, if you want to do it, we're behind it. So I figured, okay, I'll do it. And if it if I can handle it and it doesn't negatively affect my practice, I'll do it. But if it does, I'll quit. And why would I say no before figuring out whether it affected my practice? And I really had a good time. You know, it got me around, you know, I was, you know, going to games and studying things and, you know, scouting different teams that Duke was playing. And uh, I really, I really had fun. And uh, there were challenges to it. I had to get back into the office um, as soon as the game was over, I would, you know, if it was a Duke game, I would drive back home and go into the office. There was no remote working with the, no internet or anything. So, uh, it was challenging, but, uh, but I really, really had a good time. And I can't remember the timing of it two or three years in, uh, somebody from ESPN called and said, Hey, we got a game. You know, it's the big South championship game between Charleston Southern and UNC Greensboro. Can you do the game? And, uh, and so I, I said, yeah, and did the game. And, 
apparently didn't throw up all over myself. So they offered me more the next year. And one thing led to another. And I couldn't, I couldn't practice law the way I wanted to and broadcast the way I wanted to without making a decision. And so that's what led to, you know, sort of the full-time ESPN decision. Yeah. 93, you started with Duke, 95 ESPN. Was Bob Harris, was he an influential guy in, in, in your career, helping you out and trying to teach you some things? He was one, he was the first. Yeah. He was my first broadcast partner. And uh, uh, so Bob was incredibly influential. Uh, I, I was lucky to know him while he was doing the Duke games uh, when I was a player and, and he was very uh, welcoming of me uh, and, and uh, so I could never repay that and certainly taught me a lot with the way he prepared for games. But more than anything, Mike, from a nuts and bolts perspective, I think Bob, um, Bob Harris taught me about loving your, your job. Um, you know, while a lot of people might look at, you know, doing the Duke radio games or doing local radio or whatever, they might say, well, you know, that's a lower level job. For Bob Harris, that was that was the pinnacle, uh, and I don't mean you know he wouldn't have done other things if he wanted to, but um, he loved every minute of his job, and and the jo- his job was his job was the same as Jim Nance's is, you know they both do the same job, um, but I, I guarantee you this: more people know who Jim Nance is than Bob Harris, but Jim Nance does not enjoy his job more than Bob enjoyed his. And that, that really taught me a lot that, um, you know, make sure you're enjoying what you're doing because it really doesn't differ. Um, it, look, you can, if you get caught up in how many people are watching or, you know, how it's regarded by external sources or forces, you're going to constantly be, be disappointed in your life. Um, he, he loved the people he was around and worked with and loved his job. And that was a, a great lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Good guy. Very good influence on, on me as well here. My time at UNCW had a chance to, to you know, run in, in the same circles with him a couple of times. So 1995, again, you get the ESPN. When, when did you kind of feel, okay, like I've got something here. This is it. This this is my calling in, in a sense. I, I've never thought of this as a calling. Um, I, I think uh, I enjoy it. I, I think I have some ability to do the job, but I've never thought about it that way. Um, to me, uh, it was it was something like I always said I wanted to do it when I was younger. But the truth is, when I was asked, when I was asked, the way broadcasting came up was when I became a good high school player, you're getting interviewed for newspaper articles. Back then, people read newspapers. You're getting interviewed for newspaper articles and people say I would get questions from reporters. What, what do you what do you want to do after basketball? And the truth is, Mike, I didn't have a good answer. I didn't. I was 16. I didn't know. And at that time, there were a lot of uh, or not, not a lot, but there were some former athletes that were starting to get into broadcasting. Frank Gifford was doing it and Don Drysdale was calling baseball games. And uh, and they were among they might not have been the first, but they were among the, the first, you know, Pat Summerall, uh, similar, um, you know, Joe Garagiola was doing baseball, uh, Tony Kubek after, you know, leaving Major League Baseball. So I said that. And as a result of that, that became part of the recruiting process. So coaches read it or heard it and they started saying, well, we've got a great broadcast program or we've got a bunch of alums that, that are broadcast people. And when I went to Duke, um, Coach K put me in touch with a guy named Chuck Howard, who was a, a you know big shot producer with ABC Sports. And he started giving me jobs during the summer uh, when I was in college as a production assistant. I was a runner for a lot of big time ABC Sports events. And uh, that's kind of how how it it came into being. It wasn't, you know, that I had that I had this calling or yearning to do it. I just kind of said it and and. You know, luckily, you know, being halfway decent at basketball kind of made it uh, made it a reality. Uh, but I did prepare myself too. Um, you know, I took a lot of speech and debate courses at my mother's urging. Um, you know, things like that that were helpful. And then I I would work, you know, during the summertime. Uh, you know, especially on the campus station and, and stuff like that. So I did a little bit of extra stuff that maybe helped me out a little bit. And, and having some sort of idea what I what I was doing. 
you've got to be good. You've got to be prepared, but you've got to be partnered with some good people as well. College game day, bald men on campus. I mean, for a long time, you worked with Sean McDonough and Bill Raftery as, as well. Working with those guys has to make it easier for you, I guess, in a sense as well. What was it like, uh, again, the early days of game day, the early days of working, you know, big Monday broadcasts with some of those guys? Well, with, with McDonough and Raftery, you know, it's like asking what's really fun about hanging out with your best friends in a bar and watching a game, you know, because that's what we were doing. And really the only thing we, we couldn't do was curse. Everything else was the same as when we'd be sitting in a, in a bar watching a game. And uh, so, you know, being with your best friends that were all quick witted and, and nobody got their noses out of joint when you'd make fun of one another. Uh, in fact, we couldn't wait for each other to screw up so we could jump on it. It was just so much fun. Um, and, you know, but, but it lasted for, I don't know, a dozen years, whatever it was. And when, when Raft got that offer from Fox or he's already doing stuff for CBS, you know, we knew we had to take it. Um, so it sort of ended that one great period. Uh, but we're still great friends and, and hopefully one day, you know, we'll do, we'll work together again, maybe do a game again for old time's sake. But, um, I really appreciated it and appreciated them. Uh, but the best part is, you know, whomever I've worked with, whether it's, uh, you know, Dan Shulman or, or Sean McDonough or Reese Davis or, you know, you name it. Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to get to work with, with Seth Greenberg and LaFonso Ellis and Reese on game day. Um, I think being easy to work with, because I think we're all easy to work with, and, and we're respectful of one another's opinions. So we may disagree uh, with each other, but we're never going to hang each other out to dry. And and we have fun together. Um, and that's a that's a uh, an important aspect. Like, we're not like, you know, cracking codes here and, you know, trying to map the human genome. We're just talking about sports. And, you know, we can we can be serious when it's time to be serious. But but we should be having fun with this. We had talked about sports late into the night one night. Again, being a Syracuse grad, I've got to ask you about Syracuse and UConn six overtime game that you guys did. What was that like when you? kept seeing it going to another overtime, another overtime, another overtime. You know, honestly, there was nothing remarkable about the game until the overtime started. So when John Cal came out and waved off the Devendorf shot um, and we were headed to overtime, um, you know, I, I didn't think that game was going to go down in the annals. It was a good, a really good game and two really good teams. But as, as the game kept going on, um, you know, Raftery and I kind of talked a little bit during break saying, let's make sure we stay out of Sean's way here. Um, and we were really proud of that. Uh, you know, Sean had one of the, you know, and has oftentimes, that was one of the great calls in, in to me in sports history. And, you know, when he would just his knack for being able to capture the moment, you know, overtime number six, you know, all that stuff. And so Raft and I did talk about it. We said, let's make sure we stay out of his way. And to me, um, as an analyst, you know you've screwed up when, it's, when your voice is on, on SportsCenter in, in a call. It should be the play-by-play -play person. That's their job. And we gave Sean clean call after clean call. And he hit them all out of the park, each one of them, which, you know, is not surprising. But, but you know, I admire it. Um, but, but we, Raft and I talked after the game that we gave him clean calls and we were really happy, happy about that. And, you know, you, when you mentioned before, Mike, about in basketball, about, you know, being role players, that, that, that's the, I, that's the same thing about, you know, everybody's got a role in a broadcast. And if the play-by-play -play person starts talking over a replay when a basketball point's supposed to be made, well, that's not their role. And it is not... It is not the, in my view, it is not the analyst role to be screaming and yelling while the play-by-play -play person is supposed to be calling, you know, the important points in the game. And, and Raft and I were really proud of that. Yeah, that, that's amazing, especially, you know, a three-man booth for basketball is tough to begin with, but you guys to take the initiative to say, hey, we got to step back. Uh, that's pretty impressive there. And, at, you know, during that time as well, you've also done some stuff at CBS for the NCAA tournament, and you worked with Dick Enberg during that time. I've got to assume... 
he was someone maybe you watch or listen going up in California when he was the voice of uh, UCLA. Yeah, Dick Ember was God to me when I was a kid. He did UCLA games. He did the California Angels, uh, the LA Rams, uh, and then uh, had a show called Sports Challenge that I watched. I mean, it was like Sports Jeopardy uh, back then. Um, so Dick was a was an icon and very influential uh, in my life. I met him when I was in college and uh, and spent time with him uh, back then. Had dinner with him uh, when I was in college and and played tennis with him uh right after i had graduated so when we got the opportunity to work together uh at cbs um you know i was exclusive to espn but uh I, my understanding was that cbs gave espn uh it took off highlight restrictions off sports center so it, i think they traded me and lynn elmore over to cbs to do the tournament and so i got to work with dick and i got to do you know uh, all the way through the elite eight um which was fantastic. So I don't remember how many years we did it, five, at least five. Uh, and it was a blast. Um, I, I, maybe it was more than five. I can't remember. Uh, might have been six or seven. But um, I, I did Dick Enberg's last college basketball game uh, at Syracuse when, uh, when Kentucky and West Virginia played in 2010. And when he packed his stuff up, he didn't want any fanfare. He just wanted to walk out of there. And that night I made him go to dinner. So we went to dinner and, uh, and Bayheim, uh, the Syracuse had lost that day, flew back. Jim Bayheim, Rolly Massimino, PJ Carlissimo, we all went to dinner that night. And, and I, I'll never forget him, how much he laughed and enjoyed being around those guys, all the stories, you know, Rolly Massimino couldn't, couldn't uh, have dinner. His food was all over him. He's laughing so hard and talking and, um, and it was really, really fun and enjoyable. And after he left CBS, then he went with the San Diego Padres. And so we had kept in touch. Uh, and he called me one day and said, uh, you're not going to believe this. I have a podcast. <laughs> so Dick's got a podcast and he wanted me to be a guest on it. And I said, sure, Dick, you know, when, when? I was thinking tomorrow or next week. And he said it's, it was in like six months. And he called me once a month to remind me that in six months I was going to be on his podcast. And uh, he called the day before I did the podcast. It was wonderful. I had a great time talking to him. We talked a little bit before, a little bit after. And when, um, when the, the, I think it was the next day he died. Wow. And uh, one of his people called, uh, called and said, uh, just wanted to let you know, um how much he enjoyed that and uh he talked about it and all that stuff it made me really um it really was touching uh but he was a wonderful man just a, a brilliant pro but a wonderful man and one of the best days i had with him was we had a game uh we were doing a uh, the ncaa tournament here in charlotte oddly enough so i was staying in my house and he was staying in a hotel and we had a day in between games and he called and said i would like to go to belmont abbey do you know where that is? And, and, and can you direct me there? And I said, hell, I'll pick you up. I'll take you myself. And so I picked him up at the hotel and we drove down to Belmont Abbey, uh, which is, you know, 30 minutes from Charlotte, give or take. And we spent the day looking at, at, at where Al McGuire worked and coached. And, uh, and it, it was, we were there for four or five hours maybe. And he told Al McGuire stories and it was, you know, he had written a play about coach McGuire called coach that actually uh, uh, opened at Belmont Abbey. Uh, and so it was one of those things where, you know, I could have said, hey, I got taped to watch Dick or I'm busy. Um, but it, it, if I had said no to that, look what I would have missed. Yeah. Um, you know, just a brilliant, brilliant broadcaster, but even better person. Yeah, 2003 to 2010, I believe you worked with him doing games with, with CBS. So that's, that's, that's incredible. As you said, watching him growing up and then having a chance to, to work with him. At, at what point did your you know law career end, or, or or is it something that you're still doing? Yeah, some would say it ended before it started. Um, <laughs> I uh, I'm still licensed to practice. I'm still with the same law firm that I first started with, Moore and Van Allen in Charlotte. Uh, I, my role now is of counsel, which is a nice way of saying I don't do anything. Uh, I don't lift heavy objects like I used to. I used to carry a pretty big caseload and really work. Uh, I did that for about seven years, maybe. 
but uh, took the up council role and sort of slowly tapered down to uh, now, you know, I have a, a minimal role helping the firm in recruiting uh, and then uh, uh, the occasional business development, you know, bringing in a client or something like that. But it's uh, uh, I have not I have not asked the firm what value I'm to them. As long as they keep me, I'm going to keep my mouth shut and stay. And as soon as they uh, as soon as they knock on the door and say, get your ass out of here, I will uh, will drop on my knees and be grateful for the, the 30 years they allowed me to stick around. Because, uh, you know, for me, it's less about the, you know, the resources, the firm that are your fingertips. It's more about all the smart people you're around and benefit from. And then, you know, my, I'm 58. For some reason, my, my generation, I would think, or at least me, uh, I, don't, I don't do home office very well. I got to get up and go into the office uh, to feel like I'm going to have a productive day. Otherwise, I'll be in my pajamas watching Law and Order reruns and not get anything done. I got I got to get up and get out of the house. So you won't be watching I Come in Peace as we get into your acting phase of your your, your life here. Uh, tell us about that and how that came uh, came about. When I was, I you know, I I, I did a uh, my high school team did a guest you know guest starring role in the uh, the old White Shadow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'd done a little bit of acting when I was in high school uh, based on the, you know, sort of the speech and debate stuff I had and the forensics coach I had. He was also uh, head of the drama department. So he got me into that. And after my first year, I think, playing overseas, I got a phone call from somebody in the Lakers organization that I knew saying, hey, uh, uh, Minolta is shooting a camera commercial uh, and they're looking for uh, six, eight basketball players. And, uh, and I thought of you and, you know, you should, you should come, come in and look at this thing. And I, you know, I was an idiot about that stuff. I thought, I, okay, this sounds great. I got an inside track for this commercial. And I went to the audition and I was one of like 50 guys looked just like me. Uh, and you know, I had no, you know, I had no inside track. So I auditioned for it and I wound up getting the part. And as a result, uh, the commercial ran for three or four years. Ernie Grunfeld was the technical consultant. So he would come in and, and you know, every once in a while he'd stop the production and say, and take me aside and say, all right, nod your head and act like I'm telling you something really important and then do whatever you want to do. Um, but uh, when I was shooting the commercial during a, uh, during a break, one of the camera operators um, said to me, hey, you know, watch you play at Duke or whatever. And, uh, and he says, who's your agent? And I told him my agent was Larry Fleischer. And he goes, well, I've never heard of Larry Fleischer. He goes, yeah, he represents Magic Johnson, this guy. And he, he took me on. He goes, no, no, who's your theatrical agent? And I go, I don't have one of those. <laughs> and he said, well, you, you can make a lot of money doing this. You need to get an agent. And you can get, get into the union, get taft hardly into the union. You already got a job. And you can make a lot of money making commercials. So I looked into it. I got an agent. I got into the Screen Actors Guild. I've been a member since 1986 or 87, whatever year that was. And uh, I got more commercials. I got a, I did a Budweiser ad, did other stuff, some print work. And my agent calls me and says, his name is Joe Kolkowitz. He's a, with a, a firm called Athletes and Artists. And he calls me up and says, you ever done any acting? And I told him about, yeah, I was in the White Shadow once. And I was, you know, <laughs> it was a lead role in the high school play. And he said, well, let me send you on a, an audition. See if you like it. If you like it, I'll send you on some more and we'll see if, if you can get this off the ground. And the audition was for uh, a Dolph Lundgren picture. And I read for it. I got a bunch of callbacks and, uh, and I wound up getting the part as an alien cop in that movie. And uh, it shot in Houston and LA. Uh, my head exploded in the movie. I got to shoot a big gun. Um, and I was like, I got, I got, you know, single card credit at the beginning of the movie. It was amazing. I made a fair amount of money and the movie still plays every once in a while. I get a phone call from somebody saying, Hey, I'm watching your movie right now on HBO or, you know, it's ridiculous or people, you know, people watch it and say, I didn't know you were in that. Your name was on it. Um, it's kind of, it was an amazing deal. Uh, but right after that, coach K offered me the coaching job. So I kind of walked away from all that stuff. You walked away from Dolph Lundgren to be with Coach K. I think I think it worked out well for you in the end there. Uh, I thought I thought that performance was Oscar worthy, Mike. Think what I could have done in future years. I, I, well, I'll go find it. I'm sure it's on VHS somewhere, right? 
Go, go oh, it's, oh, it's Blu-ray. It's you can get it anywhere now. Okay, all right. What you can get out anywhere as well as your your book, Toughness, as well. So when did you think about that? And, and that's something else that you want to do and write a book because it's something that you know you see a lot of teams that have gravitated to this. And as as a team, they're reading this book. Yeah, the the book was an interesting um, interesting journey, I guess you'd call it. Um, I think when I was a younger player or athlete, you know, coaches talked about being tough and you, you didn't really know what they meant. They didn't really define it. And, uh, and coach K did the same thing. Um, and so when I, I think he kind of learned about it a little bit and I was never as tough as I wanted to be, uh, I always wanted to be a tougher player. And I played against a bunch of guys that I thought were tougher than me and you know, kind of pissed me off. But when I was, uh, you know, later years, uh, maybe, 10, 15 years ago, I was watching a game and somebody like me, a broadcaster, had talked about a player that was just being a big bully out on the court, talked about the player being tough. And, you know, like most fans, you know, you you, you have different, sometimes your opinions differ with who you're listening to. So I was like, that guy's not tough. He's the opposite of tough. And for some reason, I don't know what it was, it motivated me to write an article. So I wrote an article about what toughness means in basketball. And nobody asked me to do it. I didn't have any idea why I was doing it. I just did it. And I sent it in to my editor at ESPN and said, you guys didn't ask for this. I was just moved to do it. If you don't want it, throw it away or delete it. But I just felt strongly about this. So I sent it in. They liked it. They packaged it and put it out, you know, sort of as a free article. It wasn't, you know, behind a paywall like some of my stuff was back then. And I, Mike, I couldn't believe it. Like I start getting emails and letters from literally all over the world um, from coaches, military people, um, you know, corporate leaders, teachers. And uh, I was blown away. I, I just, I could not believe it. Uh, it, it, it resonated with people. Um, it kind of struck a chord. And then after that um, I got talked into writing a book and my wife was the one that was influential and in saying, okay, if you do this, it's, it can't be about just basketball. It's got, and it's got to have a different sort of reach to it. And I consulted a lot of my friends um, and did a bunch of interviews and research and wrote it. And, uh, and it wound up doing really well. And, and, but the best part of it uh, has been when I hear from, whether it's a business leader or a, a, a high school team or a college team, when they've used it as a, a vehicle to start a conversation among the team and decide what's important to them. Uh, that's really been rewarding and, and really neat. And then occasionally I'll hear from a high school kid that said, I went three years, I couldn't make my high school team. I read your book and I made the team. Wow. That, that's pretty neat. Uh, you know, that's, that's been a really nice thing. And it came out in 2014. And like I said, you're still seeing people put it on social media that, hey, this is their team bonding type of thing that they're doing. So as you said, I mean, it started with a passionate article and, and it's turned into this. It's uh, just amazing, uh, you know, what could happen with that. Maybe more amazing is the folks that read your tweets, your young Jeezy tweets. I've got to ask you about that. JR would be upset if I don't ask you about that. You've got to tell us about the backstory and, and how that came about, because uh, I know there's a certain... Tar Heel that's involved with that as well. Yeah, Hubert Davis uh, was part of it. So it, it really happened when uh, uh, with College Game Day, when Draymond Green, we were at Michigan State, and Draymond Green was listening to headphones, and we asked him what he's listening to, and he said Young Jeezy. And Hubert turned to me and said, you know, do you listen to that? Or is that – he might have said, is that on your iPod? That's how long ago it was. And, uh, and I said, actually, it is. I do listen to it. And, uh, and so I – some people on Twitter, maybe I think it was, didn't didn't believe me, and so I put a lyric or two out, and and I think I have this right. It's been so long, but I think I went back and forth with some people, and and one time, I mean, I had to leave and go to my like my law office, so I just typed in you know the lyric, and then I got to go to work, and I don't know how it caught on, but it caught on, and uh, and I've done it almost every day since. Um, you know, I have some repeats here and there, but. Um, but, you know, I got to meet young Jeezy through it. Uh, you know, he, he reached out and, and, you know, put my name in one of his songs. And that's pretty cool. And, 
um, you know, like I like a lot of kinds of, a lot of different kinds of music. I, I'm a, you know, I, I probably more than anything, a Rolling Stones, old school Led Zeppelin guy, but, uh, my tastes are pretty diverse and, and I've always listened to since night, you know, late seventies, listened to what the Sugar Hill Gang started with them, but listen to, to hip hop and rap. It's not all I listen to, but, but that's just been a fun little, little lark that we've had. Yeah, as you said, you had a chance to meet him. He was blown away that you were using his his lyrics, right? Like he, and as I don't you know said, if he was blown he, away, he, but he, he was, he was, he was, he was claimed to be, yeah, he claimed to be flattered. And, <laughs> uh, and you know, he would, uh, it's happened a couple times where he'd text and say, hey, I got a new a new uh, song or album that's about to drop. Do you want to put it out first? And I'm like, yeah, that'd be cool. Um, you know, and it's given me a little bit of, uh, of cred with my uh, my kids, you know, my my son when that was going on didn't think I was uh, quite as big of a, an idiot as he later on, you know, established. Yeah, that that's hard for for us dads to not you know have their kids think they're idiots. I know we're running out of time here, but I do want to get your thoughts on nil. I know you just wrote a piece on ESPN.com for that as well, and and you've always been you know a proponent for the student athletes, trying to let them and help them get what they deserve. Your thoughts on NIL, where this is headed, where, where you think, you know, college athletics are headed right now from a student athlete perspective. You know, I think NIL is just uh, the first step toward athletes just having full economic rights. I mean, when I was in college, uh, I was on an NCAA committee called the NCAA long range planning committee. And, you know, we would have discussions about, um, you know, issues that, that were, were college sports was facing. And I disagreed with a lot of NCAA policy and said so. Uh, but back then I was a member of a committee. So when a decision was made that even if I dif- disagreed, I supported it publicly because that's, I felt like that's what you're supposed to do, but, uh, I don't work for the NCAA anymore. And, uh, so if I disagree, I, I cover this stuff. So if I disagree, as long as my bosses say, it's okay for me to say this stuff, I say it and I'm, I try to be, I think I am, I'm respectful. Um, but I think you could go back and look at what I've said over the last 15, 20 years about the, the college court system. And, you know, it, it, at least you'd have to admit I was right. Um, you know, th- this has not been handled particularly well by the NCAA and they didn't have to be in this position, but they are. Uh, but I think we're moving toward fairness and ultimately fairness is athletes being able to participate in this multi-billion dollar entertainment industry, just like everybody else. And as you see, Mike, with the, uh, you know, UCLA and USC going to the Big Ten, and that's not going to be the end of this. Um, When when all these administrators talk about tradition and loyalty and, you know, this is about, you know, education and all that. And then you see what they do. You know, it's not that they're not telling the truth. And it doesn't mean they're bad people. They're not bad people. But they're they're stuck in a rhetorical box here. This is pro sports and players can still go to college, go to class, get an education and make money. They can do both because other students are doing both and other students are working and they do other things. They write books and they, they, they star in movies and all that stuff. It happens. Natalie Portman went to Harvard. Nobody told her you're an amateur actor. Stop it. Um, but they're selling these players for billions of dollars. The idea that they can't monetize their their worth, um, you know, name me something else that does that. Nothing else does that, and and it shouldn't happen here either. Yeah, it seems like that's certainly changing. Uh, I want to leave on this. Uh, I know you're doing a lot of different things. Tell me about your your, your golf podcast. Is that correct? You've got that now yeah. in the season here. I'm. Uh... I've got a podcast with a platform called Five Clubs, which is named after the five original clubs of the USGA. And, uh, you know, Gary Williams and Gil Hance uh, uh, have have a podcast as well. Uh, it's all part of the, they call them Five Clubs Conversations. And been fortunate enough to have, you know, Andy Roddick, who's a, a good friend and a terrific golfer, has been on. We just had Justin Thomas, two-time uh, PGA Championship winner and, and Ryder Cupper and you name it. Um, so it's been fun. I mean, I'm a golf enthusiast. I love to play. Uh, I love learning about it. Um, and, and especially as I get older, that's going to be my activity of choice when I can't physically do anything else. But um, I've made so many friends in golf, and I can't imagine my life without the game right now. Um, I, w- I just wish I would have played when I was a little kid. 
but it, it it's the podcast. Hopefully people who listen think it's fun, but I promise you it's more fun for me than anybody else. It's just a, a an honor to be able to get to talk to all these different people in the game. Well, well certainly uh, like for us as well, it's an honor to talk to you. As you mentioned, you just did the NBA draft as well. I've got to ask you one last question. You talked about wingspan. How many times you would say it has become a drinking game now? And I heard going into that, you said, I'm not going to say it at all. I didn't watch the whole draft. Did you say wingspan at all? Oh, yeah. No, I didn't say I wasn't going to say it this draft, but there there was a year. I don't remember the year, but, you know, after this whole drinking game thing came up and I don't look, I would sit at home and say the exact same thing. My, my wife texted me during the draft and she said, if you say percentile one more time, I'm going to bed. And, uh, and I started laughing at that. Um, but uh, I can't remember what year it was, but after this whole wingspan drinking uh, game came up, I decided that I was going to try as best I could without diminishing from the importance of, of what I was really supposed to be doing. I was going to I was going to comment on a player's length without using that word. And so I came up with, you know, tremendous linear extent in space. And I had different things to say about a player, a player being long armed. And I didn't say wingspan one time. And I kind of thought, you know, I'm going to get ha- either hammered for it or people are going to laugh. And nobody really noticed, uh, at least to my recollection. But um, I don't mind this whole thing. And I don't mind if anybody's critical of it, say, keep saying wingspan. One, it's really important. It's more important than the player's height. But the other part of it is, look, you'd say to somebody, all right, you give me anything, cars, houses, whatever. Um, Tell me when you watch Fixer Upper that they don't say the same shit over and over again. (laughs) They do, you know, uh, shiplap and, uh, you know, uh, high ceilings. They say the same stuff. And when you talk about 60 players in a row, it's going to sound similar. If we talked about cars, you know, they'd be saying, yeah, you know, great, great lower suspension. They'd say the same thing over and over again. They, they, there are similarities to all this. Yeah, it's hard to, to change some of that stuff up. Uh, before we leave, how, how can people follow you? I know you're, you're new to TikTok now. And if, uh, it, you know, people have to go on there and see that very first TikTok video that, that you put on there. It's very good. But uh, how can people follow you? I am uh, at Jay Billis, I think, on everything. Um, so it, it's uh, pretty easy. Um, you know, at, at Jay Billis on Twitter, on uh, Instagram, on TikTok, and I can bore you to death on every medium. Well, Jay, this has been a lot of fun catching up with you and, again, hearing more about you going beyond your bio as well. And can't thank you enough for spending some time with us here today. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, great stuff there from Jay Billis. Again, follow him at Jay Billis on all those social media platforms. You do not want to miss that, especially those daily tweets from young Jeezy. And he's got to go to work. Yes, all that good stuff here today. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And be sure to subscribe. More great guests coming your way as we continue on this path that is in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.